You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Lord and Master of my life, deliver me from the spirit of slothfulness, meddling, ambition, and vain talk, but bestow upon me your servant the spirit of purity, humility, patience, and love. Yes, O Lord and King, grant that I may be aware of my own sins and not to judge my brother, for thou art blessed unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hello, Father. Are you ready to talk about the Good. third Sunday of Lent, Year C? This is, I know this caused some angst for you, Annie. And, uh, <laughs> this but, set of readings confused me so much. You know I what? Actually, it. I think it's pretty good stuff. And we're going to be looking at some famous passages that, okay, why did it confuse you? Why? Because you know these passages so well, but their connection between the two is like, what? And then what the church is asking us to draw out of them leaves us a little bit like, well, that would have been nice in like a general Bible study, but like, what does this have to do with what we're talking about during Lent? But I'll tell you, it has everything to do with Lent. There's beautiful themes that run through this. If we just kind of are patient, a lot of times I'll tell you what is helpful. At least it's helpful to me. I know if it's helpful to other people, but simply reading through the texts and allowing them to kind of like soak in a little bit is sure. good, you know? kind of like that Lexio Divina, right? Like allowing God to speak. And I'm not saying like, oh, Father Hezekiah having like visions of angels, you know, whatever. That'd be cool. But no, but there's something to that, right? Like to, to uh, read with a certain pious approach in which we seek the Lord, the Lord's inspiration, right? And, and, and then, and then obviously we don't, we don't stop there, right? We want to go to our commentaries. We want to do that. We want to allow our intellect, which is a gift from God to be enlightened by grace and then to be able to start to see. So I'd say the number one step is just reading slowly and then, and then, and then asking questions, even basic questions like, why in the world are we reading this right now during Lent, right? Exactly. And then allowing that to kind of settle in, right? And ask that question. That might be the question I ask after every reading today, Father. Yes, yes. <laughs> Let's go ahead. Let's get into it, Annie. All right. Get out your notebooks, get out your Bibles, and get ready to read along with us. So the first reading for the third Sunday of Lent, year C, Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, and then verses 13 through 15. The responsorial psalm is Psalm 103. Looking at the gospel, we will be reading Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. And our epistle is 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 6, and then verses 10 through 12. So you're ready to unpack the book of Exodus today? Let's do it, dude. All not, right, let's not do it. Dude, I shouldn't call you dude. Dude, Annie Mitchell. <laughs> That's all right. You can call me dude. I'm all let's right. Let's jump that. into it. All right, let's jump into it. Exodus chapter three. And again, this is verses one through eight, and then verses 13 through 15, if you're reading along in your Bible. Here we go. 
Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. Leading the flock across the desert, he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There an angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in fire, flaming out of a bush. As he looked on, he was surprised to see that bush, though on fire, was not consumed. So Moses decided, I must go over to look at this remarkable sight and see why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw him coming over to look at it more closely, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. He answered, here I am. God said, come no nearer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I am the God of your fathers, he continued, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. But the Lord said, I have witnessed the affliction of my people in Egypt and have heard their cry of complaint against their slave drivers. So I know well what they are suffering. Therefore, I have come down to rescue them from the, from the hands of the Egyptians and lead them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Moses said to God, but when I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. If they ask me, what is his name? What am I to tell them? God replied, I am who am. Then he added, this is what you shall tell the Israelites. I am sent me to you. God spoke further to Moses. Thus, you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Thus, I am to be remembered through all generations. So here okay, I'm not sure if I read that as dramatically as I should have. <laughs> no, you know, as, one, as I said earlier, this is one of those texts, I think I said this earlier, that we know quite well, right, from our childhood stories and things like sure. that. We've seen pictures, we've seen all the things like that. Most of us have, you know, phantasms, we have images in our mind, pictures from our storybooks, what this looked like or how it sounded or whatever the case may be, maybe from Charlton Heston's the yeah. uh, exodus, you know, whatever the case may be. And so we know the story quite well, which is why actually, Annie, you, I think you said, well, I'm not sure I read that properly because like, we know this story, which is also why I think it's very hard for us sometimes to crack the nut, right? To get beyond the story to the inner meaning of the story beyond the childhood reading or the surface level reading to what is actually going on, what the church is asking us to draw out of this text. So but of course, there's contextual things we need to look at and things like that. Yeah. So first of all, then, can you can you talk about where this is happening and how did Moses end up here? OK, so so let's go, let's just turn our open. Make, well, first of all, make sure you have your Bibles open. OK, so we're in Genesis chapter three. But of course, what are we going to do? Exodus chapter three. Sorry, Exodus chapter three. Thank you. What are we going to do? We're going to look at the chapter before to get the context. At least we know the context of the story of Exodus. But here, just as a way of reminder, we'll take a look at chapter two, verse 11, where it says that one day Moses had grown, when Moses had grown up, and we remember he was, he was saved by Pharaoh's daughter, right? Very interesting. Now, and then at the end of the story, Moses is actually going to go and be an advocate and save the seven daughters 
of this Midianite man, and he's going to become their savior. So there's this thing we he become he's saved by a woman, he becomes a savior of these women. Very beautiful. But here in Genesis, I'm oh, sorry, Exodus. I keep saying Genesis, Exodus chapter two, verse eleven. On the day when Moses had grown up, or one day, sorry, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So again, from a biblical perspective, of course, this looking as more than just, well, he just saw what was going on. No, there's something he looked upon. Not only he saw his people, he looked on their burdens, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to see this very similar thing take place in a few moments at the story of the burning bush, right? God is going to look upon the burdens of his people. Mm. This happens throughout salvation history. And what's the story coming to me right now is David, right? Sure. David is called why? Because God is the shepherd of his people. So he looks for one to shepherd his people, right? This story has a lot to do with mediation, with God allowing us to participate in the salvific work, which he's going to accomplish. Moses is going to fulfill this role. The bush is going to fulfill this role. The bush by in terms of typology of Mary, who is in the New Testament, the fathers of the church, the new burning bush, if you will, uh, is going to fulfill this role. And all of us are going to be called to fulfill this role. And we're going we're gonna to face this same issue in the gospel story of those who are called to fulfill this role and yet do not. So Moses, very interesting here, stands in this middle road where God calls him to a task, much like he calls the burning bush, if you will. And Moses says, I don't know, Lord, if I'm able to do this. I'm not sure I'm the one. Mo Jesus is going to come to a fig tree, as we're going to see, which is not itself bearing fruit, right? It's not shooting flames out of the bush, if you will, right? Sure. Um, and, and, and then the result of that, Jesus is going to say, it's not going to be so good. Right. So there's a there's this all of this is going on now during our Lenten journey. And we're going to keep that Lenten journey right before us is what the church is trying to call us to. Because, of course, Moses is about to go on big wandering in the desert. And we're about in the midst of that wandering in the desert. So there's much here to learn from Moses and the calling and what the Lord is calling us to as we're wandering through the desert of, uh, of Lent. But here he sees the burden of his people. You know the story well. He sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite. And Moses intercedes on behalf of the Israel. I'm going to just turn our Bibles very quickly to the New Testament. Keep your hand there in your Bible. Okay. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. And we'll just read this because, look, you know, it's one thing for Father Hezekiah to give a commentary. Another for St. Paul to give commentary. So when St. Paul give commentary. As much as I love you, Father Hezekiah. Exactly. You know, so Saint Hebrews Paul chapter 11, verse 23. And Annie, why don't you go ahead and read this? We're gonna go, why not? Let's read through verse, you know, 29 or 28, somewhere around there. Go ahead. Okay. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to share ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered abuse suffered for the Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. 
By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Okay, so we're presented with this man now by, by St. Paul in terms of faith, right? Because the, the one who trusts in the word of the Lord, and though he struggles, there's much to learn for us here in this, in this passage about the story of Moses and our own calling in the Lord, though he struggles by faith. Of course, what is faith is the total giving of ourselves to the other, right? The Lord speaks to him, right? Moses receives that word, and while he's challenged by it, while he struggles with it, nevertheless, he ends up going to Pharaoh. So here we are. We have him. He goes. He, he kills this Egyptian who's beating up on the, on the Israelite and ends up leaving the promised land and going out, leaving the promised land, leaving Egypt and going out into the desert, right? The Arabian desert. The Midianite people lived on the edge of the desert near the Red Sea, okay? And uh, I love this story here. And I think it's, a, it's just for, for, you know, for a little bit of context is good. In verse, verse 15, verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, right? He heard that Moses had killed this Egyptian. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters and he came and drew water and filled the troughs with water, their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them. There you go, right? He's saved by Pharaoh's daughter. Now he goes to, to save these daughters, this Midianite uh, priest, and watered their flock. When they came to their father, uh, Reuel, he said, how is it that you have come so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread, right? Because the guy's got seven daughters. He's got to marry his daughters off. Yeah, and exactly. here this guy shows up. So he's like, <laughs> you know, he's like, what are you doing? So, okay, here we go. Chapter three, verse one is where we begin our, our text. And, and so these Midianites are people dwelling out there in the Arabian Peninsula along the Red Sea. We first encounter the Midianites in the book of Genesis. So if you want to flip back there very quickly, Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25, the story of Abraham and another wife, which is not the best situation, but nevertheless, here we are. Yeah. Oh my gosh. If he didn't learn his lesson once, well, he didn't learn it twice. And here you go. Genesis chapter 25, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, and... Midian. Midian. So the Midianites were distant relatives of the Israelites, right? And so, uh, and of course, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who we're going to hear about here in this text, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob's new name becomes Israel when God changes his name, who has 12 sons who sell their brother into Egypt. They themselves follow in their sins and end up in slavery in Egypt. So here, these are their distant cousins, the Midianites, and he's living out there in the middle of this desert. And, and of course, we don't know the Midianites' pagans, maybe memory of the true God, maybe a confused kind of sense. This is what was going on out there in the desert, right? Memory of what had come before and yet distance from the promised land is always problematic. And so there are people that is kind of like mixed up out there and Moses ends up 
marrying one of this guy's daughters and ends up here leading the flock, leading this guy's flock across the desert. He came to Horeb, the mountain of God. What is Horeb, the mountain of God? It's Mount Sinai. It's just another name. So you got to keep that in your memory. Horeb, Sinai, same mountain. So he comes to the mountain that God is going to bring him back to. Yeah. Right. So this is good to remember when he leaves Egypt, he's like goes out into the desert. Well, he's going to head to the big mountain, which is Mount Sinai, a place where God has appeared to him before. Now, we all know God appearing on Mount Sinai in this, you know, the cloud of glory, the fire, the thunder on top of the mountain. But here, what happens? He appears to him in a bush. And I'm going to give a couple recommendations here, guys. One, uh, a couple book recommendations. One is a book that I've held on, held on to for a number of years. Uh, by a man named Goran Larson, L-A-R-S-S-O-N, Goran Larson, Bound for Freedom, hmm. the book of Exodus in Jewish and Christian tradition. Not bad. Protestant guy, but very nice, actually. A lot of his commentary is excellent. And I think he's Protestant, pretty sure. Anyways, and another guy. Now, if you want to really sink your teeth into some serious meat upon which you are going to choke on the big pork tenderloin, Right here, Umberto Moshe David Casuto, C-A-S-S-U-T-O, Umberto Casuto. This okay, is not a sound serious. Yeah. yeah, a commentary in the book of Exodus. Pretty substantial. This wow. book is excellent. If you really want to study Exodus, look, I understand about three words on each page. Okay, but those words that I understand are are gems so i do encourage if you want to really study exodus if you're doing a bible study in your parish something like that you got to have this commentary but don't expect to get a lot of spiritual insights out of it but it's going to help you understand deeply the text and from there the spiritual insights will come but there you go okay the flaming bush i have a little quotation here for you from larson he says this the rabbis ask, why did God not choose another place? For example, from the peaks of the mountains, from the elevations of the world and the cedars of Lebanon. The answer is found in God's self-humiliation. While speaking from a bush, on him, quote, on him, the words of Solomon can be applied. One who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor, Proverbs 29, 23. And is written, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. The revelation consequently implies that no place is too lowly for the presence of the Lord. He goes on to mention, of course, Mary, who this bush becomes a type of the mother of God, with whom, within whom the Lord dwells and shoots out like fire, right? Uh, wow. and, and yet is not consumed, right? So the, the bush remains intact, is not destroyed by the presence of God. The Lord humbles himself to allow this created order to mediate or to be an, uh, an avenue through which God's life is delivered. And then Mary says, of course, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he's looked upon with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Okay. And, and again, I just point back to this thing about Moses being called now to be like God the one who has humbled himself to a lowly bush who is going to come and make himself present among his lowly people 
during mm-hmm. slavery. And yet Moses still has to take off his sandals, though. I mean, yeah. that's got to be a big deal. There's there it is. And you re, and when else do you remember the sandals being taken off or this kind of conversation, Annie? Think about it, Annie. New Testament, Annie. Sandals taking off. Yeah. I am not worthy to. Oh, untie the, untie strap. the strap of a sandal. Yes. Okay, yeah. There's a, this is a, it's a biblical and ancient Hebrew understanding. And again, Larson gets into this point and I wanted to share his insight with you because I thought it was kind of cool. He says, we certainly need this reminder of God's holiness. The closer we come to the Lord, and this from a Lenten perspective, I think is really cool. The, sure. the, the closer we come to the Lord, the more we experience the huge distance between ourselves and God. We realize how small and impure we are. In several cult- cultures, footwear symbolizes two things that are, seem to be at odds with each other. Footwear symbolizes both power and impurity. Huh. Precisely what we have to take off before God. Wow. In many places in the world, the worshipers respond to an outward reminder of God's holiness by removing their shoes. And this is true, right? In the, in the Hebrew culture, also in, in many of the Eastern Christian among the people, the, the Coptic people of Egypt and, and India and so forth, this idea of removing your shoes before entering into the holy place of God. I remember the community that used to rent our church, used to, uh, the Syrian Orthodox community here in Sacramento, before they, they moved on, they had uh, liturgical slippers. They would remove their common shoes to put on liturgical slippers. But the point is, I think Larson's point is a good one, and that is, these are the things, both power and impurity must be removed as we enter into the presence of God. This happens again, by the way, when Joshua enters the promised land, yes, and he and he sees the Lord, he beholds the Lord. Again, he must remove his shoes in the presence of God. And Moses now, as God has humbled himself in, in, to be present in the burning bush, so Moses must humble himself in the presence of God because he is going to go, the one who is prince in Egypt, Moses is now going to go and make himself present as God has done among his people. I just leave you with this last point, Annie, in chapter two, and I mean, you might have other questions about Exodus, but chapter two, verse 24, listen to, listen to how God's presence among his people is, is, is revealed. And God heard their groaning hmm. and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew their condition. I, I honestly, that passage, I think is good enough for us to meditate upon this coming Sunday. The, we find ourselves very much in this sim, similar situation of slavery to sin hmm. as Israel found itself in slavery to Pharaoh. We find ourselves distraught. We find ourselves asking a question, where is the Lord in all of this? why isn't God making himself present? Why isn't he coming and defending his people? And yet we hear that God is present. He knows us. He sees, though we may not hear him, though we may not see him, he is present and he hears our groanings. In the midst of this Lenten journey, no matter how difficult things get, right? And, And that point of Larson, I think is very important. The closer we draw to the Lord, the more we experience the huge distance between ourselves and God. And that is exactly what those that take Lent seriously begin to experience. We begin to experience like Moses, Lord, I'm not worthy. I'm not, you, you want me to do what? And, and this is what comes to the, to the surface. And yet in that moment, what do we hear? 
and, the, and God heard their groanings. He hears our groanings. He remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. And, and he saw, he sees us. He knows our condition better than we do. Yeah. And he's going to make himself present and he's going to act. And I think maybe, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I feel kind of, I, I think that the, the Psalm, the responsorial Psalm, Psalm 103 is kind of a, a link between the first reading and, and the gospel passage that we'll be reading from Luke 13. Would you agree? Do you see that link? Certainly, Annie. The Lord is kind and merciful. Bless the Lord of my soul and always bless his holy name. Bless the Lord of my soul and forget not all his benefits. Don't forget everything he's done for you, which is, which is why, Annie, before we, I, I got to go back to Exodus one last time. Because sure. about this whole business of God's name, because oh, there's, yeah. there's an interesting revelation that takes place here. Most people really focus and spend a lot of their time getting into a philosophical gymnastics over the name of God, the existing mm -hmm. one, the one that is, 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 is before all time. But, but, and well, well, this may be, this, this is true. Certainly you have to ask yourself what this meant to Moses a shepherd of the Midianite people, what this meant to Israel in, in Egypt. That, do you think that while they're sitting there making their mud bricks, that they're sitting there having philosophical debates about the, the meaning of I am? No. Notice what the two things are tied together. Both the I am and the very personal and a kind of physical reality. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yeah. I have been here with you. And this is where the I am part is, is it becomes more powerful, right? I was there for them. I am here for you now, and I will be here for you in the future, right? I am the one that is always present to you. There's a, a beautiful commentary here from a Catholic introduction to the Bible in the, the Old Testament. It says this, God also gives a different name, names to Moses. Say this to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Notice, however, that in this instance, God qualifies this being, this being focused name by also revealing that he is the God of the covenant, a God in relation with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In addition to the revelation of who God is in himself, he, he, he also, we also find a revelation of who God is for us creatures. The God who not only is, but who speaks and acts in salvation history above all through covenants. Once again, this establishes a direct link between the acts of God and Exodus and the patriarchal narrative of Genesis and our lives. Yeah. The one who was present to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the one who was present to, to Moses, the one who, who freed Israel out of Egypt, he is the one who now is present with us in this Exodus wandering of Lent, and the one who is going to bring us to the day of the resurrection. And then, and then Annie, I think, yes, we can sing this beautiful response to Psalm, Psalm 103, the Lord is kind, the Lord is merciful. He pardons our iniquities. He heals our ills. Do not be, become despondent. Do not become depressed. Do, do not think it is, I'm a, I, it's impossible with me. 
No. If it was possible with Moses, it was possible with Israel, it's possible. It was possible with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's possible with you. And never despair. That's the work of the devil, yeah, as we find ourselves in this Lenten journey. All right, so let's go to Luke chapter 13 to, to make some connections here. Then. Okay. So this is Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. This is, I've got to, before you read, Danny, I got to tell you, I was, this is one of those passages that doesn't usually get placed, at least the first half of it, in your spiritual reading, you know, yeah. your inspiration. Yeah. So let's go. <laughs> I haven't found it in any of those, uh, those women's inspirational, uh, Alexio to be I, was, <laughs> I was looking at one of my commentaries on Luke, which is not exactly like a, a chapter verse commentary, but more like sure. a general, like uh, it, it kind of is more of an inspirational commentary, but I, there's some good stuff in it. He says nothing about this chapter, this skips section. It, yeah. He course. just skips it. Yeah. Go, yeah. I mean, I don't, I, I have to say, I don't blame them and so, folks will understand as they, as they read yes. along with us here. Yes. All right. So Luke chapter 13 verses one through nine. And he told them this parable. There once was a person who had a fig tree planted in his orchard. And when he came in search of fruit on it, but found none, he said to the gardener, for three years now, I have come in search of fruit on this fig tree, but have found none. So cut it down. Why should it exhaust the soil? He said to him in reply, sir, leave it for this year also, and I shall cultivate the ground around it and fertilize it it may bear fruit in the future. If not, you can cut it down. So yeah, right. Father, really inspiring reading here yeah. that we have in Luke chapter 13 to, Actually, to really okay. bolster us on this Lenten you know, journey. <laughs> well, it, yeah. Okay. You're right. It's a surface reading. You're right. You're like, what's this all about? But there, there, I think there are some gems here. And the first is the probably the thing that's the most like strange, which is the first part yeah of this reading right like what's this all about exactly exactly that's what i was going to say i this is what what got me caught up um initially and and i would bet that it it will catch a lot of people off guard because the first part of this passage is just so shockingly weird yeah so so can you get us past this first i mean what what are these events that jesus is talking about here I mean, right do you even know right so it, it, well, yes and no. I mean, certainly Jesus is making reference to historical events that happen in his day, which I think is kind of cool. Like yeah. this is, this isn't one of those things because we're, we're always looking for that spiritual, like the parables and the things, all these things, like teachings of Jesus being hang on to. But here Jesus is like, it, it's kind of like, honestly, it's like, oh, did you guys watch CNN last night and see that, you know, that so-and-so was invading, right? Mm -hmm. So um so uh so you know we make references to that and he's like well just like that let me teach you a lesson so jesus was a great teacher yeah. right he knew what the people were talking about in the corner so yeah. he's like okay well you're talking about it let me explain that to you because it it does impact you don't talk about it as something distant from you and and that's where jesus becomes just the, the just amazing amazing teacher but it's very interesting saint ephraim i love saint ephraim because saint ephraim lives lives about what 500 years after christ but he, he's from syria so he's within that culture he's, he's in the traditions are still swirling around about what happened and so forth and this is what he says they came and informed jesus concerning the men of galilee whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices on the festival of herod's birthday when he cut off john's head 
Now, I'm just going to stop for a second because he's going to get into this. You have to realize the division of the Holy Land from a political standpoint is a very interesting stage. When Herod the Great died, he divided his kingdom, at least the, the, the Holy Land part of his kingdom, and this is between his three sons. Right. Um, uh, up in Galilee, Herod, uh, Ar- uh, Herod Antipas covers the uh, western shore of the Sea of Galilee, right? And his weaker brother, Herod Philip, or Herod's other son, Herod mm-hmm. Philip, covers the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. That's the part he controls. Remember, Philip loses his wife too his brother. Yeah. Yeah. Right. When John says that's not right. I feel like this head cut off. I feel like I've heard you talk about like the awkwardness of Jesus crossing to different parts of Galilee. Right. As they're trying to arrest him, he goes to the other brother's territory. Right. Exactly. So now you have the two sides of the sea of Galilee, but now you have down here, you have Judea. Judea was also controlled by one of Herod's sons, Herod Archelaus, who we, we, we run into in the gospel of Matthew, I'm going slow because I don't have it in front of me, Annie, help me find it here in the gospel of Matthew. When, when the Holy family returns, there it is in chapter two, it returns from Egypt, chapter two, Matthew chapter two, verse 21, talking about Joseph is the he here. And he, that is Joseph arose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus reigned in Judea in place of his father, Herod, that's Herod the Great, hmm. he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he went to the district of, of Galilee. So, so here there's three levels of the brothers, right? Archelaus yeah. is the friggin' crazy nut job. <laughs> Archelaus actually gets removed by the Romans because he was so crazy. Wow. Okay. Okay. And so Joseph's like, I'm not going there. I'm not going to Jerusalem. I'm not going to Bethlehem to my family's property. No, I'm going back up to Nazareth, which is controlled by the next guy. The next, the, 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 he was, I mean, Antipas was also crazy. He cut off John's head. Right. But, right. but at least he was a lesser crazy. Right. And so, and so he goes up there. So the point is, this is what happens. So when Archelaus is removed by Rome, Rome changes the govern governance of Judea from this tetrarchy of Kings to this area is now going to be controlled by a Roman procurator or governor. And eventually Pilate gets put in that position. So Pilate is the Roman appointee who has to deal with these two nut job Herods up there right. who hate each other. And they're, and they're kind of like quasi Jews, right? Herod claimed to be the Messiah. Herod the Great claimed to be the Messiah. He was a half breed going back to the days of the Maccabees claiming. And he, of course he builds the temple in Jerusalem claiming to be the Messiah. So he's like, he's Pilate's got to deal with these guys. Okay. And and one of and, and so he hears what 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 Antipas does, and he's like, "Dude, you can't you can't do that. I'm the one that's in charge around here, and you can't be just you know you think you're king up there in Galilee." So here's this is what Saint Ephraim says: They came and they informed Jesus concerning the men of Galilee from many whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices on the festival of Herod's birthday when he cut off John's head, since Herod had illegally killed John. Pilate sent and killed those who were present at the feast. You never knew that oh. before. 
Since he was not able to injure Herod, he destroyed his accomplice to, to his shame, and he left him in anger until the day of the Lord's judgment. This brings a whole new level to what's going on during the passion narrative, isn't it? Yeah. Right? And why, well, and why Herod ends up down in, in, in Jerusalem, mm -hmm. the, because of this whole half-breed Jew thing, he's got to go down to Jerusalem for the feast, right? The two were reconciled, how? Through the pretext of the Lord. So though all of this tension between Pilate and Herod exists, they reconcile in order to, to get Jesus. Wow. Pilate mixed their blood with their sacrifices because the Roman authorities forbid them to offer sacrifice. Pilate found them transgressing the law and offering sacrifices, and he destroyed them at the same place and same time. Okay, that's messed up. Like yeah. that whole story is yeah. just so messed up. But now you know why they know about it, why Jesus yeah. brings it up, right? It's the latest on CNN. Yeah. Did you hear what Pilate did in the middle of Herod's birthday party? Right. Wow. This is what they're talking about all over the place. Right. And they're also talking now about, you know, the high rise Hilton Hotel yeah. that collapsed in Siloam. Right. Siloam is in the city of David on the knoll of the hill. Right. Jerusalem is this kind of like kind of like this peninsula hill. Like it's not a hill. It's a it's a finger finger of land with with valleys on on, on one side. One side is the valley of Gehenna. Oh, well, okay. there's Kidron. Yes, there's Kidron on the eastern side, leading up the Mount of Olives. And the other side, Gehenna, right? The trash valley where they threw all their trash, right? And then and the tip of this hill is the most powerful point, which is where David built his city. It's the oldest part of the city. And then on the right there is the spring of Gihonas and where Hezekiah, the king, yeah. who was sinless, um, built the pool of Siloam. Yes. I was going to say, I was going to add, I was like, what is the tower of Siloam? I heard of the pool of Siloam. Well, they must have built a tower there. Wow. Right. They built yeah. the Hilton Hotel next to the spring where they get the fresh water. And the Hilton came. Sorry, I'm going to get sued by the owner of Hilton. But anyway, <laughs> it comes collapsing down because they didn't build it properly, whatever the case may be. But everybody's talking. Did you hear what happened? All the yeah. rich people up in the high rise. They all, they all collapsed. They all died, right? Yeah. So this is, this is what's going on. Jesus uses this as a teaching. I'm going way beyond the time that I should have spent on this. But Jesus uses it because he's a great teacher. And he says, look, you know, Catholics, you know what the Ukrainian people are going through right now. Right? right? Do you think it's going to be any different from you when you stand on the day of your death? It's coming for you just as it's coming for them. The only difference is that they, they, they have at least the mercy of God. They hear the planes and the bombs. Right. And they can drop on their knees and ask for forgiveness. But your day might come like a thief in the night. Mm. Get yourselves ready to meet the Lord. Just as Moses was standing at Mount Sinai, shepherding his sheep, and the Lord appears to him, the Lord is coming for us, my brothers and sisters. Wake up, church. We are in the middle of our Lenten journey. Wake up. The cross is coming. Holy Week is coming. Wake up. Fill your, 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 your lamps with oil. Trim your wicks. The bridegroom is coming. Wake up. Fast. Prepare yourself. 
pray. The day is at hand. Wow. That's a wake up call. Certainly. It is a a wake up call. Especially when you think about like, if that's making big news at the time, clearly. I mean, those are the kinds of, that's like the 9-11 kind of moment, right? It is, it is. Yeah. And, 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 and what is all this focused on now? Now we got to get back to history, historically in the life of Jesus. Who's he speaking about? Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Jews yeah. who have seen him for how long, Andy? How long has he been with them? It's right here in the gospel. Uh, it's right there in the years. gospel. Three, Three years, years now I have come in search of the fruit. Yeah. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's been reason walking around for three years and he's, there's no fruit coming off the tree. What's the fig tree, Annie? It's God's people in the old Testament. It's the Jews. Yeah. yeah. Look, you can go back. Look at Jeremiah very quickly. I know we're almost out of time, but Jeremiah very quickly. Flip your Bibles right in the middle of your Bible. Jeremiah chapter eight. We've been talking about this a lot, Annie, about God's people as a garden, haven't we, over the last, yes, right? Yes, we have. And here this, yeah. this, this theme now continues, right? Chapter 8, verse 13. When I would gather them, says the Lord. Oh, I'm going to go back to verse 12. Remember what's going on in the life of Jeremiah, by the way. The Babylonians are Babylonians, coming, yeah. right? And so it's, a, it's the same story. Pharaoh and the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Jews and the Romans. It's all the same. Salvation history is a cycle, guys. It's the same cycle. It's going on in our lives. Look at this. Chapter chapter 8, verse 12. Were they ashamed when they committed abominations? That's the Jews. No. They were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they will be overthrown. When I would gather them, says the Lord, there was no grapes on the vine. What's the vine in the Old Testament and the new, right? The vine, Jesus talks about Jesus, the, the yeah. church as the vine, right? This is the church of the Old Testament. There were no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered and what I have gave them have passed away from them. Why do you st- sit still gather together? Let us go into the fortified Okay. And so, all right. So, so, so Jesus now uses this image very apparent to the people around him. who he's talking about, I've been with you for three years. What kind of fruit are you bearing you whitewashed tombs? Mm-hmm. Right. And here, of course, Jesus is going to the passion and, uh, and eventual the crucifixion third day resurrection of Christ, our God. Listen to what St. Augustine says about this. This tree, he says, is the human race. And this is where I think it's applicable. Yes, in Jesus' days, talking to the Jews who are not coming to him in faith, though they've seen everything he's done. Mm-hmm. And here now, Augustine applies it to all of us. He says, this tree is, is, the, is mankind. The Lord visited this tree in the time of the patriarchs as if for the first year. He visited the time of the law and the prophets as if for the second year. Here we are now with the gospel. The third year has dawned. Now it is as though it should have been cut down, but the merciful one intercedes for the merciful with the merciful one. He wanted to show how merciful he was, so he stood up to himself with a plea of mercy. Let us leave it, he says, this year too. Let us dig a ditch around it, and manure is manure is a sign of humility. Let us all apply a load of manure, perhaps it may bear fruit. Since it does bear fruit in one part and in another part does not bear fruit. Its, its Lord will come and divide it. What does that mean, divide it? 
There are good people and bad people now in one company as though constituting one body. And I'll go step one further. And that is our heart is divided, my brothers and sisters, during this Lent. And it's time that the branches that are not bearing fruit in our lives be trimmed off. That is our relationships with those with maybe with, with, with so-called friends that are not bearing fruit. It's time. It's time to, to sever our, our attachment to this world, our attachment to our 401k3c, whatever the thing is. Yeah. This is what my life is all about. I was speaking with a friend of mine just last night. He says, well, I just got to make more money. I said, it's not going to make you happy. That's not going to make you happy. He says, yeah, but, but it will, I mean, it'll do something. And I said, ultimately, you hunger for something more than that. And, uh, and until, you, until you realize that and you cut off our attachments to those things, that's what Lent is all about, is to reattach ourselves, to be regrafted onto the Lord. And such a beautiful passage, really, which it, on, of course, on the surface, what's this all about? So right. beautiful, challenging, as it was the Jews this time. We, didn't, we look like, why didn't they? The Lord multiplied loaves and fishes. He walked on the water. He raised the dead. He healed the paralytics. He made the blind to see. What is wrong with these people, my brothers and sisters? We receive the Holy Eucharist baptism resurrection of children in, in the holy in holy baptism the gift of the holy spirit has this not been enough for us to place our total trust in the lord and then to do his will and his will alone which is i mean leads you seamlessly into the epistle from uh, paul's first letter to the corinthians chapter 10 i mean he's basically saying look at what god has done don't forget what he's done for your fathers yep let's read let's just read it through very quickly Mo uh, moses annie and then i'm gonna and <laughs> wow, then i'm gonna i'm gonna share with praise. you two, two quotations from the church fathers and we're gonna call it good for the day okay great so first corinthians chapter 10 and we'll do verses 1 through 6 and then 10 through 12 i do not want you to be unaware brothers and sisters that our ancestors were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all of them were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from a spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was the Christ. Yet God was not pleased with most of them for they were struck down in the desert. These things happened as examples for us so that we might not desire evil things as they did. Do not grumble as some of them did and suffered death by the destroyer. These things happened to them as an example, and they have been written down as a warning to us upon whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, whoever thinks he is standing secure should take care not to fall. Now that ties it all together, doesn't it? I, I just, I have to just say two things very quickly, and that is regarding the baptism into Moses and they drank from Christ. Okay, just very quickly, I've talked about this many times at the ICC. I'm not going to get into it heavily here. But first of all, to be baptized means to be plunged into. How were they baptized into Moses in the Red Sea? Because, because they, they were standing there on the edge of the Red Sea. Pharaoh and the Egyptians are coming down upon certain death. When Moses divided the Red Sea, think about looking across the sea. When the waters are divided, there's two walls of water. And think about perspective. They couldn't see the other side. When they walked into the Red Sea, they walked into, by all human reason, certain death. And yet they entrusted themselves fully to Moses, setting aside their own judgments. Yes? You want to talk about what the Lord is inviting us to do in our own baptism, in our own spiritual life to entrust ourselves to him? 
that we might willingly die to ourselves, that we might live in the only one who can save us. That's what St. Paul's talking about. Think about that faith that Israel had to have in Moses and then apply it to our faith that is asked for us and are giving ourselves to Christ. And then this very fascinating passage that this rock which they drank from was Christ. Of course, of course, they drank water that saved them in the desert. And, and Jesus refers back to this time in John chapter six, when he talks about the Eucharist yeah, and the manna and then the manna, and he says, well, look on a, just a very surface level, of course, they drank from the water and therefore they were saved from death. And of course, when we're saved from death, it is God who is saving us from death. But St. Paul goes further here and makes a very clear application of the Eucharist. And I, and I, I think how beautiful that is. And I challenge you with this. In some way, in some shadow, in some type, in some way did Israel receive a foreshadowing of the Eucharist itself to be strengthened in their communion with God for the crossing of the desert. As we are strengthened by our recession in the Holy Eucharist this Sunday for this journey of Lent to come to the day of the resurrection. And then, of course, then he applies it to all of us in our spiritual life today, giving us a big warning. And this is where I'm going to leave you with two quotations from the church father, uh, the great biblical scholar Origen. Paul wants to remind us that we are not saved merely because we happen to have been the recipients of God's free grace. Because don't take it for granted. We have to demonstrate that we are willing recipients of that free gift. The children of Israel received it, but they proved to be unworthy of it. And so they were not saved. And he stops there. Think about that one. St. John Chrysostom, once again, Paul cast down the pride of those who think they know it all. For if the Israelites, who had such great, great privileges, suffered these things, and if some were punished merely because they were heard to complain, how much more shall we suffer if we do not, if we are not careful? Anyone who relies on himself will soon fall. For the way in which we stand in this world is not secure and will not be until we are delivered out of the waves of this present life into the peaceful haven of eternal rest. Therefore, do not be proud of your standing, but pay attention so that you will not stumble. If Paul was afraid that it might happen to him, how much more ought we to be afraid also? To Christ our God be glory both now and ever, and to ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.